This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. In today's show, I'm looking at good comics. Which is not to say comics that are renowned for being particularly good, although the titles that we'll be discussing today are, but rather the output of a small press publisher whose name is Good Comics. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Rosie Hathaway, one of the artists published by Good Comics, who'll be discussing Cosmos and other stories, and the various comics that have been published by Good and by herself as a small press creator. However, to start off with, I'm talking to one of the publishers and editors at Good Comics, Paddy Johnston, and we're discussing the various ways that comics intersect with his life, including his previous life as a comics academic with a PhD and a couple of books under his belt, as well as a commissioning editor and contributor to some of his publishing imprints anthologies. My interview with Paddy, as well as the later interview you'll hear with Rosie Hathaway, were recorded at Cartoon County before lockdown, the monthly discussion group for comic book creators based in Brighton Hove and the Southeast. As such, you'll have to forgive the background noise and a degree of jealousy that this was recorded in pre-lockdown times. I'm very happy to have as our guest Paddy Johnson from Good Comics. Paddy is an academic, a former academic, um, a uh, comic book creator and publisher, and you're going to talk about your uh, path through those various systems. That's my thesis, which I got from the University of Sussex. Some of my academic friends are here, people I came up with through the the academic system, which was great. So I handed that in almost two years ago now, and since then I applied for a few jobs in academia and didn't really get anywhere, and I realised that it was just not a very good career path and I was sort of already so I handed that in in August 2016 and in October 2015 I had already co-founded Good Comics which is the publisher that I still run to this day Um, and that was starting to take over already so I sort of my interest in comics quite easily at that point transferred over from academia into publishing other people's work and it started to go well, so... And I already had a, a kind of a day job anyway. My PhD was always kind of a side thing anyway that I just wanted to do, so that was just kind of how it, how it transitioned, I guess. Hmm. But, yeah, so that's my thesis. But we can, well, in, in terms yeah. of, you know, something that's really big at the University of Brighton, in order for academics to explain what they're studying to other people, they have an idea of a three-minute thesis where you explain all 80,000 words in three minutes. How quickly can you do it, Paddy? Well, pro- probably even less. So the title is <laughs> Working with Comics, Labour, Neoliberalism and Alternative Cartooning. Neoliberalism is probably a word that you hear on Twitter a lot, of people, people moaning about neoliberalism and that kind of thing. But basically it's the um, overriding political philosophy that everything is up for sale, everything... It's kind of like the, the ultimate end of free market capitalism. And I looked at that... And I looked at alternative comics and I looked at how, basically, how artists get paid, who's getting paid and why, where the money is coming from. And I looked at single, sort of, the, the auteurism in comics. So people, comics being made by a single author versus the collective production um, that we see a lot in alternative comics as well. And I basically just argue that 
alternative comics do well because they're made. There's always a whole bunch of people involved, versus the i the autorist and neoliberal idea of the self-made entrepreneur, which is just like someone being a solo actor in the free market. So it's about the individual versus the collective, and the alternative comics. So basically, anything that's outside of Marvel and DC, I guess, but um, is a tension between single and collective ownership. And I argued for that being the defining thing in alternative comics. Nice. They seem to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you turned some of the uh, research you did for that um, thesis and indeed a uh, collection of, t- of uh, speakers you brought together for Comics Forum to speak around that subject into a book called Cultures of Comics Work. Yeah, so this book came out with Palgrave Macmillan last year. It's an edited collection um, if you want to get hold of it, try and get it from a library or somewhere because it costs 50 quid. And that wasn't my idea, but that's how academic publishing works. Um, but yeah, a, a couple of years into my PhD, I got talking to a fellow academic called Casey Brienza, who still lectures at the City University of London. We both had a shared interest in comics and work, how comics get made, who's making comics and why, how are they making them, how are they getting paid and that kind of thing. And we wanted to do an edited collection. And we, we put the idea to Roger Sabin, who we knew quite well, who is the professor at Central St. Martins. Um, and he also edits the Studies in Comics list at Palgrave Macmillan. And they were quite receptive to the idea of an edited collection on this. And we put out the call and we got an amazing, amazing bunch of submissions, 16 chapters that ended up being all from all over the world as well. So we basically just said, give us essays on how comics are getting made, who's making them and why. And then this, this book came together, so we got submissions from like South America and Eastern Europe and places we had no idea about to all talking about their kind of local scenes and stuff. So we ended up with this quite interesting book. And then the one on the right is the Canadian Alternative, which I think is slightly cheaper, probably retails about 20, 25 quid. <laughs> I think there are copies in Dave's Comics, actually. But um, that's published by the University Press of Mississippi, and I have a chapter in that about... Uh, Michel Rabagliati, who is a cartoonist from Quebec, who I talked about in my thesis quite a lot. And I'm very into Canada and Canadian stuff. And this book is all about Canadian alternative comics, so it was quite a good fit for me. So that's um, basically as far as I got in academia as having those few publications. And then I sort of went, well, I'm not really getting anywhere in terms of either finding stable employment or just kind of anything at all really so <laughs> I decided to focus on other things but I'm still proud of the things that I accomplished and I could even it was still great That's nice which brings us to good comics um, you've brought a selection uh, of your titles here um, including the very first one that you published um, Dead Singers Society uh, which is a compilation um, presumably in terms of finding the people to contribute to it you use social media? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. So I think this might be the last copy of Volume 1 of Dead Singers Society. So there are three volumes. These are all for sale, by the way. Not that I'm like some kind of travelling salesman. But if you want to buy any of them, I do take card payments. But, um, yeah, so Good Comics came about when me and um, Samuel C. Williams, who wanted to be here, but he's looking out for his kids tonight. Um, so I'm on the left, he's on the right. We actually became friends on Twitter, um, quite a long time before we decided to found this. We were just talking about comics in general, and we both had ordered each other's comics. That we, so we were both creating comics ourselves, and sort of started talking and thought it would be nice to make a table together at a convention or something. So 
we got the table at Thought Bubble in 2015, and we were like, shall we try and put together some kind of anthology or something, or collaborate on something? Um, and that idea ended up being Dead Singers Society, which basically we put out a call on Twitter and just said, give us one to two pages about your favourite dead singer. Don't care what it is, writing, <laughs> comics, whatever, um, portraits, anything at all. And the response was really, really good, actually. Um, we got enough to get together, I think it's 28 pages, which was pretty good for kind of first-hand anthology. No one had really heard of us, but we knew just about enough people that it had a, kind of a little bit of reach and got some really, really great stuff. And actually, if you click through to the next one, I don't know if you can see, uh, and the one after that, I don't know if you can see, but this was um, this is generally people's favourite Dead Singers comic, which is what Freddie Mercury's moustache did next, which is by Alan Henderson. You guys might know him. He does a strip called The Penned Gwyn. He's very prolific, um, publishes pretty much every day, which is, and he's just crazy. And um, so that, and then sort of about a week or two before we were due to share this table at Thought Bubble, we were like, Let's actually make this legit. Let's be like a publisher. Let's be a publisher. Let's make it a thing. Let's give it a name. Um, and we came up with the name Good Comics because the story is I was at, we were trying to think of a name um, leading up to the show. Time was running out. And I was, um, I was at this show. I was at a gig watching my friend's band. And um, in between the songs, someone shouted out, Your band is good. And it really made me chuckle. And I texted <laughs> Sam and told him about it. And he was like, Good Comics. That's it. <laughs> Uh, our comics are good. And he, like that was the whole thing, and then the slogan. Our slogan ended up being "Our comics are good." And that's how we ended up being called Good Comics. So it all came together in quite a nice way around Thought Bubble in 2015, and then we sold a few copies of that, and then it just kind of went from there, I guess. Nice. And you still continue as well as uh, Dead Singer Society. You've published other zines. So right from the start, were you interested in it not only being a comics publisher but also a zine publisher? Absolutely, yeah. So we do have kind of a smaller line that we label good zines, I suppose. <laughs> so we want them to have... They're not necessarily... If you were to be a purist, they're not necessarily zines in the traditional sense. They're perhaps not photocopied. They're not super cheap or not necessarily fanzines about anything. But they're cheaper than most of what we do. And often we print them more cheaply and offer them at a cheaper price point. Um, and they're often artists who kind of need that that little leg up or a bit of a bit of a break or that kind of thing. So they're seen as our kind of cheaper and more entry level, more fun side of things, I guess. But yeah, we, we always wanted to publish scenes as well as comics and to kind of keep the door open to publishing mm. all kinds of stuff really. Well, and it's interesting as well, just thinking of what is a, what is a comic, what is a zine. I mean, something like uh, The Times I Knew I Was Gay, which seems to be one of your most popular titles. It's really doing the rounds um, on social media. It's uh, kind of a diary comic. Sometimes it'll be a block of text. Um, sometimes it'll be a single illustration. So in a way, it's bringing some of the language of zines to a graphic novel. Absolutely, and she self-published two zines of it before it was collected into a book. So when she approached us to, uh, Ellie Cruz, she approached us to publish the book, she um, she mentioned these two zines, which we'd actually both already picked up, which was great. So we were, we were fans of her work already. And yeah, again, the, the leap between those two zines and those becoming a book actually isn't that much. It's There's, there's a lot more pages in there. Mm. She drew some new strips and expanded a whole bunch of stuff, but the content is more or less the same. It's more about how you frame it, I guess, and how you think about it. And the word zine carries a different meaning and a different weight to the word comic, but they're all pretty close to what they are, really. Mm. But people approach, say, our table at a con, and they see 
they see good scenes, they see it's cheaper than the other stuff. Some people love that. Some, that means to some people they're going to automatically pick that up, and to other people that means they're not. But it's nice that we're covering both bases, I guess. Mm. But it, but it also means, I mean, I, I find this as well with, it's a shame um, Corin isn't here tonight, but Myriad have published some graphic novel, which I feel have really kind of expanded the form in terms of what is a graphic novel, what are the kind of things you can do, whether it's sort of Nicola's Diary Comics or um, something like The Black Project. Yeah. Uh, it's not traditional kind of balloons and panels. It's sort of bringing a new language to graphic novels. Is it more that it was a coincidence that a title like this is doing a similar thing, or do you also kind of look for projects that are breaking the definition of what a, a comic or a graphic novel might be? We, we always say that we want to do that, but I think it's more coincidental than we might think. I mean, I think we were lucky that Ellie approached us, for example. But yeah, we're, we're always open to new kind of projects. We've been talking about doing stuff that breaks the mould for a while, and we, we've wanted to mess with formats as well. So we're talking, we've been thinking about doing like subscription boxes or hmm. something like Chris Ware's Building Stories, where you open a box and it's full of a bunch of different stuff. I mean, that would cost the earth to print. So for a <laughs> publisher like us, who barely breaks even, it's impossible but, yeah, we've always wanted to make sure that what we were doing was unique. So but if you wanted to tap into, say, the Marvel collector mentality, where they do an annoying crossover that involves 20 different comics that you wouldn't normally buy, if you actually curated that on purpose and got small press creators to do interlinked stories, and then if you bought the set, you got the full story, that would be amazing. That's actually exactly what we've been talking about. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing we've been talking about doing for two years. It's literally kind of getting all of our people together and doing a Hmm. box and a bunch of different stuff. And actually the first step to to that in terms of seeing how people, how our creators work together has been the Good Comics Reader, which is, this one is actually our most recent publication. So that's kind of a first version, first incarnation of that, I guess. Hmm. But yeah. I think that's the kind of thing we will get to eventually when we have a little bit more cash. But nice. yeah, we definitely want to try and tap into that collector mentality. And I think we have just about enough people who are interested in our work that I think we could make it work. But it's taken us three years probably to get to mm. that point. And during that three years, in terms of building up the list of titles that you have published, was it a mixture of people approaching you and you approaching people saying, I'd like to do a new edition of what you've brought out so far? It was mostly us approaching other people, okay. actually. Yeah. Um, After the, tonight, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is where we're yeah we're drawing the line. <laughs> no, no. So it's um, starting with anthologies was really great because it allowed us to reach a whole bunch of people who we could then reach out to and be like, hey, would you like to do a book or this kind of thing or people? So the first thing we published after Dead Singer Society was actually Chicken Boy. Um, by James Howard, and this is the collection of kind of full-page drawings. And James, I don't know if any of you guys know James Howard, but he is unbelievable. He is just super prolific and always posting incredible art. Or he posts a thing and he's like, oh, I'm not sure if these roughs are done, and it's like a thousand times better than anything I could draw. (laughs) But um, he had done a thing for us in Dead Singers 1, I think, or we knew him anyway. So that was the first thing we did after Dead Singers 1, and we knew that he already had this kind of body of work. So we were, we were sort of friends with him. We knew him already. Um, and we knew that he had all these pages that were kind of just lying around. And we were like, let's collect these into a book. Let's do it. And then the same thing happened with Robin Williams Scott, who does, he does this diary comic called Every Life I Ever Lived. I'm sure you guys have seen him on Twitter because he's always tweeting and he's always posting these strips, which he does every day. <laughs> and he does them in biro. And these are like, this is actual size as well. So he draws <laughs> them super tiny with the biro and he's just it's unbelievable. So again, we approached him because we loved his work. So that was kind of a bit of, not quite a confidence thing, but where we, we looked at people that we knew whose work we were familiar with, where we thought, 
we really like what you do, but we also feel like you need to get to a wider audience. And the way to reach that is actually not through digital and social media. It's actually through print. Mm. So it's actually about getting stuff into print as much as it is about anything else. Did it take him out of his comfort zone filling A4 pages for the good comics reader? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but I think he did do it really well. Nice. Um, and then something like uh, Human Garbage, which is terrific. Uh, it's a mixture of new strips by Josh Hicks as well as ones that have previously been published in other anthologies. Yeah. But presumably you felt it, he should have a collection of his work in one place together. Uh, yeah, and again, this is the point where it starts to seem incestuous, <laughs> which it isn't. But um, Robin actually tipped me off. He, he emailed me saying, Josh has a whole bunch of this stuff floating around. You should get in touch with him and get put together a collection. And I was already aware of Josh's work through his Glorious Wrestling Alliance comics, which if you haven't seen them, are hilarious. It's so funny. Um, I'm not even really into wrestling, but it makes wrestling seem like the most fun thing in the world. But, um, um, yeah, so Robin tipped me off about that. And then I got in touch with Josh and he was like, yeah, sure. And that one sold really well as well. Mm. So we started to build these kind of relationships with people, I guess. But this is part of the thing about, I think, independent comics as well, or UK comics as well. It's a, it's a small thing. Most people know, most people have heard of most people. Most people are pretty approachable, most people are pretty nice. Generally, you just you, you find out about people, you see their work at a convention maybe, you chat to them and it kind of goes from there. But that's mostly how it's been for us. Anyway. Mm. And in terms of building your list... Um... Do you also think of it in terms of, like, when you're editing an anthology, that you want a certain number of styles that are like this, a certain kind of storytelling that's like this, and you don't want too many things that are too similar? They want, you want variety. Absolutely. Well, with, with Dead Singers Society, I'll be honest, we've never turned anyone down. <laughs> every, every, every submission we've got has made it in, because nothing we've, we've received was really that bad. There were one or two where, where we looked at it and we were like, well... I don't love this art style, but it says something cool about what, who, whichever singer that is. So let's have it. Like, so we've been pretty open about that with anthologies, but with um, yeah, with when most it mostly being people that we choose, we can generally pick and choose different styles. But yeah, we're we're very open minded about style. We just want to publish comics that say something or have a cool message or that make us laugh or whatever it might be. And actually, a lot of that does come down to our personal taste as well, mm. which is your prerogative as a publisher. Publishers try and pretend that that's not a factor, but it is. Well, actually, I think that's an important thing. You know, people... A publisher gets a reputation because someone likes a couple of things they publish and they think, oh, perhaps then there is some taste involved in terms of the commissioning editor and I might like other titles that they bring out. Yeah, it's absolutely like that. And if anyone sends us something... Sam and I discuss it, we talk about it, and we go, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? Like, I think not that we've received like, loads of submissions and one or two things, but it's like when Ellie submitted her book to us, both of us were immediately just like, yes, this is amazing, we want to publish this. Then one or two other things we, we sort of talked about, and actually maybe, maybe not, and it's not necessarily because it conforms to any sort of list of things that we're looking for. It's just, yeah, it comes down to a matter of taste. And I think if you look through all of the things that we've published, you can get a vague sense of what we like. But, yeah, it's... If it's not for us, it may well be for somebody else, for sure. Mm. We don't necessarily feel like we know what, what's really good, or even though we're called good comics. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just about what we like, really. And throughout um, working on your PhD and subsequent chapters, and throughout working on um, publishing good comics and editing good comics titles, you're also a comic creator yourself. Um, have you felt, being involved in academia, 
being involved in publishing has had any influence on uh, being a creator? When you were doing strips while your PhD, were they all about the crushing nature of capitalism and how neoliberalism <laughs> makes it hard to be an author? <laughs> yeah, all the time. Uh, no, actually, um, since publishing people's other people's work, my own comics work has declined dramatically, and that's fine. I think I'm better at publishing other people's work than I am at creating comics myself. I was always quite slow and very unprolific anyway, but I am trying to finish a thing for Thought Bubble this year, so if, you, if any of you go to Thought Bubble and you see me behind the table, please quiz me about it and give me a hard time if I don't finish it, because I have a hard time finishing those kind of things. But yeah, I, I think I, I, just, I work very slowly and I have a lot of commitments and I find it hard to find the time to draw comics, because as I'm sure you guys know, comics take forever to draw, to make, and like... Um, I, yeah, my time is limited and I always found it a very torturous and laborious but ultimately rewarding process but I've found much more enjoyment in publishing other people's work which you know, has a whole different set of rewarding qualities to it. And you're also a musician as well. Have yes. you felt that um, being in a band performing music has had any relation to creating comics? I mean, they're both creative pursuits, but beyond that, is there any correlation between the two forms? A little bit, yeah. There's actually some very interesting academic work about the, the musicality of comics and how comics fit together like sheet music and stuff, which is a very, very fascinating area as well for those of you who are into your kind of formalist stuff in your theory. But... What's really good about having multiple creative pursuits is that when one starts to bore you or frustrate you, as inevitably it always will, you can go off and do something else. And that's, I think, how I keep it fresh, is just having multiple creative pursuits or different things that you do. It's always good to do something different when you're trying to work on one thing. So I, I never really step away from publishing. You know, I'm always, I'm always emailing people about books and always talking to the people whose books we put out on that kind of thing. But... I always have that kind of release and that kind of different types of creative energy, which, yeah, which do inform each other, for sure. I mean, as, a, as an indie musician as well, you also have to think about audience, which is the same as publishing comics independently as well. You have to think about who's going to buy this in the same way as you have to think about who the hell's going to come see our band on a Wednesday night um, in, in Zone 6 of London. But <laughs> you, can, you can get people. Mm. So, yeah, all of it informs each other. Sure. And also, as um, being a publisher, it feels that it's um, a really good time at the moment to be publishing comics in terms of uh, the reproduction. So if you look at, say, the, um, the way that Rosie Hathaway's um, painterly uh, comics are reproduced on the page, they look terrific um, in your edition of her work. Even the kind of mark making that's represented by the rough crayon on the page, the way that that's represented... Uh, in the Good Comics Reader. Is that something that's kind of excited you as a publisher, or it's just kind of like, thank goodness, it's not going to be black and white on newsprint? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, well, all of these, apart from these two here, are printed by Rich at Comic Printing UK, who is the glue who holds all of comics together in the UK. <laughs> I mean, he is just an incredible man, the nicest and most professional person I've ever dealt with, and he prints them really, really well. He knows... I mean, he, he recommends stuff to us. He, he always gets it right. He always knows exactly what we need. And it's really great. But these two were done on a Rezo, a Rezo printer by a mate of ours who has a Rezo, who Sam used to work with. And that's a sort of fun thing to do as well because it just comes up very, very differently. You know, we've got quite thin paper going on, quite vibrant colours. And that side of things is interesting as well. So it's either done by Rich or it's done by our mate's Rezo. And we haven't really done much in between. Hmm. So it'd be nice to think about different ways that we could mix it up. But... 
yeah, we're we're always proud of the print quality that we've done, and Rich has always come through for us, so we're we're really lucky to have it. Actually, nice. And forthcoming publications that you're allowed to talk about? Uh, yeah, so we, we're taking the summer off, more or less. Um, but Sam has a collection coming out called Daddy Day, which is a bunch of strips that he's done. One of them previews in the Good Comics Reader um, about sort of spending time with his kids, about fatherhood and stuff. And I'm working on issue number two of my sort of comic zine thing, Ball Game, which will be out in time for Thought Bubble in October, fingers crossed. So it's actually come the time where we started out as just a thing where we wanted to publish our own work for just the two of us. And then we spent a long time publishing other people's work and now we're actually coming back to our own, to do our own work through this. So our egos have come full circle, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, the next thing is actually publications from the two of us. And then we're going to open submissions for Dead Singer Society Volume 4 at some point very soon. So very excited about that because it's been over a year since Volume 3 came out and... I think 2016 was the big year, actually. Then that was the year when we had two and three both that came out sort of quite soon after that. So, <laughs> Does anyone have any questions for our yeah. guests? I was, I was going to ask a general, and then I thought a bit more specific. Well, one was, what have been the biggest challenges as being a publisher that you've had to deal with? And then my specific was about, have you found distribution of actually getting comics out to the general public? Well, it's interesting the way that you framed that, because the biggest challenge... Is distribution, always. I'm, I'm sure you knew that when you asked that question. But, yeah, we, we've had to establish those relationships with retailers, so comic shops ourselves, just kind of approaching people. Sometimes they're really receptive, sometimes they're not. So we're really, really lucky to work with people like um, Gosh and Orbital in London, Dave's Comics here, and Travelling Man um, as well up, um, up north. So we've got good relationships with a lot of those retailers, but it has taken time to build those relationships and, um, you know, comics retailers, they're not making a whole lot of money either. So it's, it's a challenging business in terms of margins anyway. So we do this because we love it. We do this because we really care and we don't want to get this work out of it. We're not making a bunch of money out of it. We, we make just about enough money from one book to be able to do the next book. But yeah, distribution has been a real challenge as well. And, you know, if people order stuff from our online shop, we post it out ourselves. And that's fine. But that can be quite time consuming sometimes, especially when we've, we've done a new book and we've done pre-orders and you've got like 40 or 50 envelopes just kind of stacked up in your house and you turn them to the post office and they look <laughs> at you like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, but yeah, distribution and establishing those relationships has been a bit of a challenge. And, you know, fair play to comics retailers. They've got to think about where their money's coming from. If someone's approaching them and they don't know who they are, if their comic's going to sell, fine. But yeah, get sort of establishing that level of legitimacy, I guess, has been a challenge. But it's a challenge that we've managed to overcome to a degree, and we are where we are, and we're in a good place right now. So when you convinced, I forgot the name, the guy who did Every Life I've Lived. Robin. Robin. When you convinced Robin that he should go into print to expand his audience, <laughs> did, did expand his audience? Did you? Oh, yeah. numbers? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he, he was also really good at, He'd self-published a sort of a little collection that he'd, he'd done on a bunch of A4 sheets and printed out and sort of bound up and hand-tied them. And he was giving them out at Thought Bubble the year before. And he came up to our table and gave, gave one to us and we stood there like, wow, this is really good. So he, his audience was definitely, I mean, the, the people buying his book from us or pre-ordering his book from us probably already knew of his work on Twitter anyway. But I think a lot of people did come up to us at the table and pick it up and think this is really cool. And people see it in shops and they pick it up or they see the cover and they think that's really interesting, especially as it's, it's square A5, which is quite an interesting format, that kind of thing. But yeah, the, the extent to which the audience already exists for that kind of work and whether they're just buying the print book 
because they've been reading it online for a while. I mean, we'll never know. I'm not a kind of data nerd who, who would endlessly pick through analytics on that kind of thing, but I would be interested to know. It's a good question. Um, so, going back to your thesis, what could you sum up what you learned, what, what, what the outcome of that paper was? Don't do it. <laughs> 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 I'd, I'd be interested yeah. to know, are we all just a little micro economy, all sharing the money around, around the little circle? In a way, yes. And that's, that's always the challenge. I think, yes, that, that was kind of the conclusion, actually, that so many people end up working on a comic and distributing it. And so I, I argued that a comic is made by many hands. Even if one person wrote and drew it, there's the people who print it, there's the people who sell it, and to an extent, the people who read it as well. But yes, that is always the worry. That's always the anxiety, that we're just selling to other people who already make or like comics and the question of how to break out of that and how to get comics into the hands of people who don't read comics is, is a big thing that we want to address as well. And um, the times I knew I was gay has been really good at doing that as well. So we've got that into like regular bookshops where people wouldn't touch any of our other work, but because it has this kind of theme that's quite different, um, it's doing really well on that front. So we're trying to publish books that get into that area as well. But yes, that's exactly what I found in my thesis. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if that's just the case across all media now in the digital economy. So I was reading something the other day that said that if you look at vinyl, if you look at DVDs, if you look at video games, that 60% of all physical uh, media for entertainment is bought by 4,000 super fans who buy everything. (laughs) You know? (laughs) It seems insane. I I suspect I might be one of them. (laughs) Terrifying. (laughs) I I talked in my thesis about this book called The Curve, which is by Nicholas Lovell. Um, I published it in 2012, but it's, um, it's a study of kind of fan engagement and this kind of thing which is that people mostly kind of put out their work either for cheap or for free um it's he talks about musicians and authors and other people all kinds of media content producers and it's a curve of his curve is a curve of sort of people who pay nothing right up to super fans who are willing to pay thousands of pounds for anything that you do because they are super fans so <laughs> We need to find those people for us. Yeah. It's, it's probably a fine line, though, from superfan to stalker. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? Well, only because if one of our absent members would ask, <laughs> how do you make money from it? How do you pay your artists, or do you not pay your artists? What's the financial... So the, the model of publication is that we, we take everything until the cost of printing is paid off and then profits are split 50-50, which is just about fair enough. So nobody really loses, but nobody's making a whole bunch of money either because it costs a fair amount to print them and we don't mark them up, mark them up loads because people wouldn't buy them. So, and, and we're always studying that and always looking at the profit margins and looking at how we can do. But we always open pre-orders of... You know, as far advanced publication as we can, try and market them as best we can. So we've got a fair amount of money in the bank before stuff, before we have to pay the print bill, and we're on thirty-day terms with Rich, which is very, very helpful. <laughs> but um, yeah, and you know, not all of our books have made money. Some have done really, really well. Some we are still paying back the print cost on. But we generally make just about enough money from one book to then publish the next book, and we kind of go on from there. So that, that's our model, and we do it because we care, not because we're trying to make money. But we're trying not to lose money either, and so far we've just about done okay. So, and again, that's a factor. If someone approaches us going, 
will you publish our book if we love it but we think it will sell no copies at all because it's too weird or <laughs> something then we'll kind of have to say no so it's it we we do approach it as a business but only in as much as we want to make sure we're not losing money i guess our eyes aren't flashing with huge dollar signs cool paddy johnson dr paddy johnson thank you very much thank you so much. <laughs>For more info about Paddy Johnston's work, please go to his website, paddyjohnston.co.uk. That's P-A-D-D-Y-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N.co.uk, where you can find more info about his book, Stealing Home, which is published by Good Comics, as well as his work in academia, podcasts, music, and various other disciplines. For more info about Good Comics themselves as a publisher, please go to goodcomics.co.uk. The interview with Paddy, as indeed the interview with Rosie that you'll hear shortly, was recorded at Cartoon County, a monthly discussion group for comic book creators in the southeast, which continues as an online event. More info about the next meeting of which at the end of the show. On the Panel Borders blog, you can find my interview with Ellie Cruz about her graphic novel The Times I Knew I Was Gay, whose first edition was published by Good Comics and second by Virago Press. On our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com. In the second half of today's programme, I'm talking to comics writer and artist Rosie Hathaway, about the various titles she's worked on over the years, including Cosmos and Other Stories, which was published by the small press imprint Good Comics. My interview with Rosie was recorded at Cartoon County, a monthly meeting for comic book creators in the southeast, and this interview was recorded before COVID, so you'll have to forgive the background noise of a lively bar in Hove. You've only been making comics for a few years, and already your career seems really impressive. In uh, 2015, you were chosen as one of Broken Frontiers, uh, one of six up-and-coming artists to watch. And then in 2016, you won their sort of Best Artist of the Year award. Um, Both of those things happened before you'd even finished college. (laughs) Yeah, it was um, a very busy time. I think I started university as a mature student, and I was really dedicated to finding what I wanted to do. And I started making comics in my second year, and then once that started I just didn't quite know how to stop um looking back I've made a lot of work in the past couple of years and I don't quite know how I did it but it was good it was a good chance to experiment a lot and practice putting stuff out there and figure out how I want to be an artist I think it was good to do all of that I'm definitely enjoying a bit of a rest (laughs) after all of that (laughs) What degree were you doing at the time? I was doing illustration, so I'd always intended to do some sort of creative effort, and I did want to make comics, I just didn't quite know how, and being a mature student gave me the opportunity to figure out how to do that on my own without having to worry about a wage at the same time. Mm. Uh, In Nottingham? Uh, Northampton. Northampton. Yeah. Um, So, well, one imagines that Northampton, because of a certain local resident, uh, is probably quite keen on comics. I mean, were they open to illustration students doing sequential design? Yeah, we had modules in first year that that covered that kind of thing. Um, There is quite 
quite a good comic scene there. Everyone's very, very fond of Uncle Alan, and it is something that's discussed at most places when you're there. So they were open to the idea. It's definitely still a broad degree, but they were keen on comic mm. creators. There was a few of us in, the, in my year. Okay, nice. Um, making it onto Broken Frontiers Radar, uh, like them, I mean, I've seen your work out and about. Uh, so presumably, right from the start, um, when you started making comics, you went to various festivals in order to get your uh, product in people's hands. Yeah, it was weird. I'd never been to a comics event until I started applying to table at them. It was a bit of a strange approach. Now I look back at it, but at the time it just made sense. Um, yeah, I, I'd sent a copy of my first comic to Andy asking if he'd like to review it, and mm. he said yes. It was a good few years ago before he started getting hounded by people and just from there it seemed to really go up I mean the first um, event I did was a alternative press takeover in London and I mm. sold absolutely nothing and yeah. there were many of long travelling and sitting on suitcases and not really doing much but they slowly got better and I think the just kept going and it started going well mm. just took some time the um the style that I know you for that's certainly represented in these two comics that are being handed round is the use of um, really sort of interesting, um, not necessarily um, realistic, but sort of evocative um, swashes of colour across a page, and then sort of delicate um, pencil drawings over the top. Was that a style um, that you felt? was the way that you wanted to express yourself on the page right from the start or did you go through various kind of phases before you sort of pinned down your you know the way that you particularly express yourself in comics yeah it came a bit later I always when I first started making comics it was always black and white I hated using colour it was all cross hatching and nothing like it is now I started trying out gouache at university and I really really enjoyed how it looked on the page the tactile nature of it just mm. really hit with me um, so it definitely wasn't what I envisioned myself doing, but it just ended up that that's what I really liked. And now I don't tend to, I think, in colour when I begin a project, mm. and it's really influenced how I create comics now. Okay. I, to be honest, I didn't realise it was gouache. I assumed it was watercolour. Well, yeah. What's the difference between the two when you're layering? Gouache, tins? it's quite thick. I use it very watered down, which is why it looks quite watercolour-like, but mm. it has a more opaque nature to it. Watercolour can be quite difficult to work with, whereas gouache, it's a bit thicker, it's a bit easier to to fill in the lines, I, I guess mm. is what you call it. And it also has that nice, when you layer it up, it can look quite thick if you want it to. It's a really nice paint to use. And I guess using that as a form of colour uh, on the page... It feels like you've come along at the right time because a few years ago you wouldn't have been able to reproduce that cheaply in mass-produced self-published yeah. comics. Yeah, definitely. It's really useful that you can produce stuff that well. It's still hard because when you paint something on a page, everything I do is on one page. Mm. So I don't have separate sheets for pens and separate for the paint. It's all together on one. So sometimes when it is reproduced, you can feel that slight disappointment. It's not quite as bright as when I first made it. But the amount how good it does look compared to a few years ago is really impressive how large do you work i double up so my spreads okay. at a3 to be printed at a4 hmm. um 
you've been doing short stories and indeed you've been collected in a number of anthologies. Uh, the two comics that I brought here, um, Island and Njala, Njala. Um, are both uh, comics that are kind of grounded in a time and place but also have an ethereal quality. One of them is about a little girl who captures a star that she sees beneath the waves and the other is about... Um, uh, I can't, I'm not going to use the word Inuit because that would be wrong. Um, the Sami people. A Sami person um, who uh, sees the northern lights and then ends up adopting a fox that may or may not be some kind of uh, spirit animal. Um, it, it feels like those kind of stories are very well adapted to your art style because they have this semi-ethereal quality, this sort of folky, um, folk tale type quality to them. Do you think of stories that suit your artwork or do you come up with a story and then adjust the art slightly to, to go with the story that you're telling? Um, I think it's more personal interest. So I like very magical, imaginative stories. I spent my childhood making up all sorts of stories and plays and strange, nerdy things that I wouldn't care to admit. <laughs> and it's just part of... I like the very ethereal things and being able to step out of reality is cold harsh world if you can think of the world as a little girl who finds something it's more of my way of writing anyway but it definitely does suit to it more if I was writing noir crime I don't think it would be quite as effective (laughs) might we expect a noir coming maybe maybe we should give it a go (laughs) do you write um, the script out in full in advance or do you do the art and the writing at the same time no, I'm very regimented, so I get an idea for a story, I summarise it in a paragraph and then start scripting out and then go into thumbnail sketches and drafts and mock-ups and that. I have a very scientific method which I've developed over the past couple of years and I just stick to it now. Hmm. I was reading in the introduction... Um, to your comic about the Sami people, uh, that you did um, a fair amount of research so that you knew that you were in the sort of right area in terms of telling a story that would fit in with their culture. Um, How did you go about doing that kind of research? I travelled to Sweden and Norway on holiday um, a couple of years ago and I discovered the Sami people through travelling around. There was a lot of museums and and galleries that covered... I'd never heard of them before, and I think that was what made me want to write a story about them. Um, It was really important to me. The first comic I created was called The Red Road, and it was a a Native American tale. Mm. And there were some comments of cultural appropriation that came out, and it was something that really shocked me at the time, and I didn't want to thought that I could possibly hurt anyone in that way. Mm. So when I wanted to write a story that referenced the Sami it was really key that I knew what I was talking about to a certain extent and I could be open and honest about that because I've never been in an oppressed society whereas they have. Hmm. Um, So travelling around and I also um, had a book that was written by a professor who's based in Cambridge at the Polar, um, the Scott Polar Institute. Hmm. He wrote a really good book about the Sami that I read and tore apart and watched some films um it was essentially the most i could do you're very limited living in this country to find out all the information you possibly could because so much of it isn't written in english Mm. um but i tried to cover every single base that i could and it was really important to cover all the research i have is available on my website so if anyone wants to know why i said something or if something's spelt wrong then that's why Hmm. um 
it was one of those where I don't want to step on other people's toes, but I also equally felt it was important to describe a culture in a comic that some people may never have heard of. And to me, that's as important because then people can go off and find their own information about the Sami and find mm. out about a really interesting culture. Mm. Obviously, the the light um, in that part of the world when you're in the Arctic Circle um, is quite different to you know Europe. How far north did you travel in order to kind of get a sense of... It wasn't even that far north. <laughs> right, <okay. laughs> yeah. I went to the cities, so I travelled by train, so okay. I went from across... Uh, across Norway through Sweden and down to Denmark so it wasn't I didn't have any actual northern lights experience sadly but there was a lot of YouTube video watching to get an <laughs> essence of that. <laughs> um, as well as doing your own short comics uh, you illustrated part of um, Hoax Psychosis Blues by Ravi Thornton um, which if people don't know it was this multimedia project which existed both as an on-stage performance and as a graphic novel how did you get involved with that? That was the first comics project I'd ever done. Um, wow. okay. It was, to this day, I still don't quite know how it <laughs> happened. I joined Twitter. I'd started a blog a good few years ago describing how I wanted to get better at drawing and at comics. And I came across Ravi. She saw something in me as a new person to try and help out. And I took the job and that was it. Mm. She had to give me so much more support than any of the other creators on that project because I just didn't know how to go about doing something like that. But it was a fantastic project, and I think that really did turn everything around after that. Mm. What was it like working from someone else's script rather than your own? It was good. I'd I'd never written anything before, um, so didn't really seem any different to just drawing something based on another story. Um, but it was nice. She had a lot of reference photos because it was her brother. Mm. There was a lot of backstory there, um, and she was always on hand to kind of give advice or help. And I was lucky enough to be able to travel to the location around where she was based at the time. Mm. Um, and yeah, it, it was a really great project. So at that point, I, as I said, I'd never written any of my own things, so it was really nice to dive into someone else's story and pick apart how I could create it. And she was always so good at saying whether something looks right or whether mm. it needed tweaking. It was a fantastic project. Nice. Um, so all the work that we've seen of yours so far is all quite short. Have you got a, a graphic novel in you? I hope so. <laughs> I do hope so. I've been saying that the next thing I need to do is something big, mm. um, but in between trying to do something big it always ends up doing short stories for anthologies because it's just nice and it's easy and it's a good way of keeping some momentum up with my work um i'm hoping for maybe the last part of this year to start figuring something out but it's just gonna take some time i think i'm so used to putting something out regularly Mm. that to do something larger form would take a lot longer and i'm a bit scared of falling off the radar (laughs) (laughs) Well, perhaps you could bring out a sort of a chunky um, collection of all your shorter work together. To yeah, it has been it has been said before. I think I'd like to explore possibly translations, maybe seeing if I could get something over in France as well, just to mm. try and develop, see if there is interest over there. But yeah, I would like to do something longer. And a lot of my stories are, as you said, quite ethereal and have mm. certain similarities of childhood imagination and, and dreams. Um 
So they would definitely all fit together in a hardback book. Just need to fund it, I guess. <laughs> There's always Kickstarter. There is. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions for Rosie? So is it all hand drawn? And, yes. And what what's the what do you use the lines? Um, I just use the pit pens, so they're the Indian ink pens. Mm. Um, usually a small one. With a, oh, the brush tip? No. No, just the just the pen. Mm. Not very good with the technical time. Just the pen. Yeah, I mean that one was uh, the one previous had some underlying textures, but most of it is gouache. All of the comics I do is just one layer um, of paints, and I just keep applying and applying until it gets the right depth. Um, sometimes do more gouache on another sheet and scan it in. But for the most part, it's all just on one piece of paper. Do you, do you draw directly onto the gouache then? Uh, it's all underneath. So it's all the inks are done first, the mm. line work, and then paint over the top. Okay. Mm. Mm. So does that require a waterproof ink then, so that the gouache doesn't cause it to spread? Yeah, those pit pens are waterproof. So it's pencil very... I do pencils first... Um, and then light box over onto the final paper with just ink, so there's no pencil residue. Mm. Um, so it's just the ink and then gouache over the top. I mean, it's interesting that the technique actually feels like something that you would find in illustrated books. Mm. So in a way, coming from an illustration degree, it feels like you're mixing two sort of overlapping but slightly different media, illustration and comics. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of children's illustrations which have that kind of ethereal look to them and gouache is definitely something used by some children's book illustrators I know. The really interesting with gouache is it can be applied in different ways and it looks very very different it's applied really thickly and looks like quite graphic imagery sometimes mm. but then you can water it down and it just looks like thick watercolour mm. Did um, the attention you got from Broken Frontier, do you think that impacted on your I'll say, career in any way or because I, I find it difficult to assess uh, the reach of that uh, blog you know because it's it seems like a really good thing to be put on a pedestal and stuff, but did it actually impact on your yeah it's hard to say it is hard to say I think Andy Oliver Broker, he saw Hoax, the first thing I'd ever done. And then when I did my first comic for Red Road, he agreed to review it for me. And then that was very much the start of everything. So I didn't really know making comics before he picked up on my work. Um, the scope they get, I'm not sure how big it is, but it definitely gave me the confidence, sure. yeah, which was a good thing, yeah. And he was always very praiseworthy, so I can't fault that. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's very hard to say, but there comes that boost where you don't really know what you're doing and you try and make this thing that you put blood, sweat and tears into and you go, will you read it and look at it? And they go, yeah, it's good. <laughs> so, yeah, confidence-wise, can't fault it. What, what do you do for, I mean, <laughs> with respect, but everybody here has kind of day jobs apart from <laughs> <laughs> What, what, how do you, I mean, you know, but how do you get by? <laughs> it's been a fun few years, so I've had a couple of different jobs. I was living in Northampton with my degree, and then I moved to Manchester, where I was a receptionist, and then that fell apart, so I moved to Bournemouth. And now I work as a visual merchandiser. 
it's one of those where I've never quite found a job that's perfect for me. Receptionist was very boring, but it gave me time to research things and write scripts while it was quiet, whereas my job now is so busy that I'm incredibly tired most of the time. What's a visual merchandise? <laughs> <laughs> Glorified dressing mannequins and making shops look pretty. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of arguing with mannequins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
doing quite well at conventions and things like that is I can afford to play around with what I'm doing and see what people think, see if I like it, see if other people like it, and just go from there. It's kind of this ongoing process, but it's very low pressure, which is nice because I can just go and fight with a mannequin and still pay my bills (laughs) every day. So (laughs) the drawing thing can still be fun. And you're kind of learning publicly in a way. Yeah. I think it's important too. I've been writing a blog for about seven years and it's all been very public about terrible terrible drawings a few years ago that I'd still put up and talk about what I was doing what went right what went wrong I think it's nice to have that openness you don't necessarily get that with people who just go straight into published work to be able to talk about what you've done a year ago and say this went right this went wrong trying this thing out this week it's kind of nice to have it open for everyone to see it feels easier in a way, to know what's right and what's wrong when you get a reaction from people. You find that therapeutic to have gone through all that and detailed every step of the way? Yeah, I don't know. I kind of like the meticulous process of it all. It's comforting. (laughs) (laughs) But do you think it's helped or, I mean, is it something you felt you had to do or, you know, I mean, the blog, you don't have to do a blog, you don't have to bear your soul. I just, yeah, I don't know. I've often thought, is there still any point? But I've been writing it for so long. I figure if someone stumbles across my website or my work, they go and have a look and they find something entertaining or it just saves half an hour of their day from boredom, then that's something. All I could ever ask for is someone to enjoy my work, whether that's a comic or a blog or just a drawing I do. I think that's part of all I want is just to either make people happy or sad or make them remember something you know just that kind of human moment I think is important do you know how many people read your blog I mean have you used it as a way of, of building interest in what you do yeah my mum loves it <laughs> <laughs> and grandma um, but your Inktober went well yeah, it went quite well actually. I didn't really know what I was doing with Inktober apart from was just because that was just paint, wasn't it? That was actually brush pens. Yeah. yeah, I'd never used them before. Again, it was this way of just trying something different out, and people seemed to quite like that, yeah. which was good. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of fun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Have you tried pitching to the shop that you're working in that? The mannequins that you're arranging could do with a fully painted landscape behind <laughs> could them. Could do with some really <clears throat> nice eyebrows drawn on. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for some companies are stepping more outside their comfort zone, um, maybe with a couple more years of confidence of approaching bigger companies I could, but for now I'm just scrabble around on the floor trying to make it look nice, I guess. We have to end with a happier note than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think it's it's all good. I don't hate what I do, and to be able to come home and have a passion is more than some people can say. My parents very much go to work, come home, cook dinner, and that's it. And to be able to know that even if I'm tired, I can come home, draw something, and it's part of big part of my world. It's just better than all the other horrible stuff going on in the world. Rosie Hansberry, thank you very much. Thank you. And if anyone wants to buy your work, they can go to Etsy. Uh, I have an Etsy shop. If you go on my website, rosiehathaway.com, there's a link to my shop on there. Nice. Cool. Thank you.
You can find more info about Rosie Hathaway's various comics by going to rosiehathaway.com. That's R-O-Z-I-H-A-T-H-A-W-A-Y dot com. On Rosie's website, you can read extracts on such comics as Sparenting, Rocks, Moon, At the End of the Garden, Aquarium, Cosmos and Afloat, as well as a link to her Etsy store. Her titles published by Good Comics can be found at goodcomics.co.uk, alongside a variety of other comics and zines by the likes of Ramsey, Nikki Barnados, Claire Spiller, Paddy Johnston, John C. Douglas, Olivia Hicks, Ben Mitchell, Kristen Haas-Curtis, and many more. If you're a fan of small press comic book publishing and creators, then there are a couple of events coming up in the autumn, with a terrific variety of small press creators both on their programme and who are manning tables in the public browsing areas. From the 15th to the 17th of October in Kendall in the Lake District is this year's Lakes International Comic Art Festival. Guests this year include French creator Boulet, American crime comics writer Greg Rucker, the Canadian creator of Sweet Tooth, Jeff Lemire, and lots of homegrown talent including Charlie Adlard, Daryl Cunningham, Dave McKean, Kate Charlesworth, Blue Lou McKeever, Sayra Begyum, and many more. The programme for the Lakes International Comic Art Festival is online now, where you can find about such panel discussions as Myriad Editions Showcase, The Roles We Play, Comics Can Change the World, 10 Years to Save the Planet, The Power of Political Cartoons, Lucy Sullivan's Hands and Faces Drawing Workshop, and much more. The Lakes International Comic Art Festival can be found at comicartfestival.com. The next month, Thought Bubble returns to the Harrogate Convention Centre on the 13th to 14th of November, with events taking place across Yorkshire in the preceding week. Guests at Thought Bubble include Fight Club creator Chuck Palaniuk, Ms. Marvel writer G. Willow Wilson, and various creators from across the spectrum of comics, including Raphael Albuquerque, Cecil Castellucci, Becky Cloonan, Gail Simone, Scott Snyder, James Tynan IV, and many more. You can find more info about Thought Bubble by going to thoughtbubblefestival.com. Closer to home, the next meeting of LD Comics, previously known as Ladies Do Comics, is taking place online on the 23rd of August. And guests who will be presenting their work and discussing it with the audience online include Anaya, an illustrator, comic maker and art educator based in Delhi, Dominic Duong, a creator who's noted as one of this year's Broken Frontiers six small press creators to watch, and Carol Isaacs, otherwise known as the Surreal McCoy, whose first graphic novel, The Wolf of Baghdad, was one of The Guardian's top graphic works of 2020, and she's currently working on her second graphic novel. To book tickets for LD Comics, please go to ldcomics.com. Cartoon County, where both of today's interviews were recorded, takes place online again on the 6th of September at 7pm, with guest Sabah Khan talking about her new graphic novel, The Roles We Play. To book a ticket for this online event where you can submit questions in the Zoom Q&A chat, which will be read out to the artist, please go to cartooncounty.com 
for the Eventbrite sign-up. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. You can find all previous interviews on our blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com and we'll be back on the first Wednesday in September in an extended autumn special looking at comics with ensemble character casts, including guests Jason Scott Smith talking about his graphic novel Marble Cake and Jenny Robbins talking about her book Biscuits. And that'll be at the earlier time of 5pm on the 1st of September. Until then, as ever, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.